The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners, to Voice America's to VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. This is The Steady Investor, and I am your co-host, Mark Vickery, here in beautiful Chicago, Illinois, on illustrious Wacker Drive in the heart of downtown. Actually, it's a little hot today. Uh, I'm joined today, remote from Los Angeles, by John Blank, who is the chief strategist for Zax Investment Management, as well as the primary author of the monthly market strategy piece uh, for Zim, or Zax Investment Management. Uh, good morning to you, John. Good morning, Mark. I uh, know it's uh, midday uh, on the East Coast, but it's uh, still bright and early in the morning for you. How are you doing today? Very good, very good. Uh, John, I wanted to get a little background on you. You have a Ph.D. in economics, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I did my doctorate at MIT in the 90s. Oh, very nice. And you work with Mitch, uh, Mitch Zacks, the co-host of the Steady Investor podcast, um, who's also the portfolio manager and the founding principal of Zacks Investment Management. Uh, in, in what capacity have you worked with Mitch? Yeah. Well, Mitch and I did a show years ago uh, investing in today's markets on, on an AM radio show in Chicago for a year, and we've also uh, worked together on this monthly strategy report, which he writes the weekly commentary that kind of sur- encapsulates and surrounds that dialogue. So he and I have uh, been cooperating and working together on these these outlooks for some, some time now. But- that's great. So we're going um, to discuss a little bit of this in depth. Uh, first, I wanted to say uh, to those listeners out there, to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management to discuss managing your retirement assets, uh, call 1-800-249-2934. That's 800-249-2934. Or for more information, you can email us at ziminfo, Z-I-M, info at zax.com. Um, John, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Q2 earnings today. It's a uh, right in the middle of earnings season, and things are going pretty well so far, would you say? I would say so, yes. Okay, well, we got a big beat from General Motors this morning. Um, Actually, that company performed uh, record quarterly earnings, I think, in Europe, uh, and the first profit in Europe for five years. Um, Is this indicative of the auto industry in general, do you think? Uh, Things picking up for that group, or is that just kind of a one-off for GM, do you think? Well, it's clearly an example of uh, the sport and truck utility vehicle in the United States being the strong profit earner that it was for GM. So clearly the United States, given the raising guidance and given the raising guidance from strong U.S. demand, that it tells you that the the U.S. continues to be the cyclical strong market for growth, and that's what you're learning from GM. The other thing you're learning from GM is that they've been focusing on profitability of our market share, and that uh, clearly is paying off in their earnings because their earnings are up uh, 44% over the last year. So um, this company, believe it or not, in 2016 will earn almost $6 a share. $6 a share. Wow, that's, a, that's great. 
uh, especially for a company that was you know, obviously was part of the bailout structure from just not even that long ago, what, eight years ago or so. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and that's absolutely a good point, because what you learn here is manufacturing has the ability to see through its, its strength from its weakness, because the weakness is what causes it to ring the costs out, introduce capital investment, and take the decisions that have been piling up and not, not been acted on. So this is also good, good evidence that they've chosen the right CEO, and she really is uh, on top of things, and she knows what she's doing. That's very, very good. Um, looking forward in the auto sector, are you, uh, you expect uh, other good things, or are, you, uh, or are you thinking this is maybe just a GM-specific uh, uh, positive beat? No, I think you, you, you do have a good well, you know, stream of evidence that the cyclical companies are going to do quite well in this earnings system. So I, I would expect this to be more of what you're going to see, that, that in fact we're going to get a a decent set of beats out of a fairly low level of bar, bar because, I mean, clearly the overall earnings growth rate is going to be 5.5% for the S&P 500, which sounds somewhat negative, but you have, you're under, masking that is basically some stability in a lot of sectors and a real face plan in the energy markets. So, and even there, you're seeing a turnaround in the energy markets. And, and I, what I would point out to most people at this point in time in the United States context is that the way earnings seasons work when you know for quarters and quarters that it's going to be a minus 5% is it doesn't matter unless it's not minus 5%. So what we're learning from this earnings season is what we already know, which is good news because it's not getting any worse. Right, And the, co- and the, and the sectors that are going down the most are energy minus 77% and materials minus 12%. So all of those things, if you take them forward, and this is always the case in a summer context, Mark, is that this is the time of year when the, the 2017 outlook matters because we're halfway, we're only five months from it, and anything that comes up in 2016 doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So as long as the turn is in on quarterly earnings, and it looks like it's going to be in the third quarter, that we're going to actually start to, to resolve this, this earnings recession next quarter, here's the numbers for growth in Fiscal year 2017, energy up 215% from year on year. Materials up 15%. And by the way, those are the two holding us down now. So on a forward look, lo and behold, the things that are holding the earnings growth rate down next year are going to be spectacular outperformers. Those are the two sectors out of the 10 S&P 500 sectors which will exceed the average growth of 13% for the S&P next year. So what you're seeing here is that you know the the mainstream players, consumer discretionary, infotech, financials, healthcare, are all going to do 10% next year, and you're going to get even more than that out of materials and energy, which have been holding you back for the first half of this year. So what that tells you is that this market is pricing in that recovery, and it's believing it. And now the question you have to ask yourself is this believable? You're answering all my questions before I can even ask them, John. <laughs> I was going to say, when do you think the earnings recession is going to end? And you're saying next quarter? Next quarter. The answer is the third quarter. And again, by the way, the third quarter starts in July, August, and September. So we're already basically one-third of the way through the third quarter. So the truth is the earnings recession is ending now. And right. we will get a report on that sometime in October. But the markets already trade on it, and they're already moving up because the earnings recession is over right now. 
And this is explaining, at least partly, why we're seeing all-time record highs uh, for the S&P, for different parts of the market, right? Absolutely, because if you look at the S&P 500 from a 2016 perspective, and I'm quoting this exactly as I speak, you're talking about an S&P that goes up 0.3% in its overall earnings this year. 0.3%. That doesn't sound like any bull market to me. However, you're, you're looking at 2017, and whether you believe it or not, it's not as relevant as the fact that it's out there. It's 13.4%. So a market can go up 13% between 2016 and 2017 as long as you believe this. And the reason it's believable is only two of the six of the 10 S&P 500 sectors are going to be above that 13%. That's energy and materials. And it is true these are historically way beaten down sectors. The, the, the strength in the global economy can pick these sectors up, and they can drive the other four double-digit S&P earners over that level, and we go forward. And that story, until it's been tested by the data a year from now, will be what the market trades on. Right. Well, you're talking about uh, the energy industry, for instance, having these massive returns coming up, but they're off of very, very low comps, aren't they? Historically low. That's, that's the point, right? So we've ground our way down here, and now on a forward look, the year-on-year -year comps become these spectacular numbers like plus 212%. I mean, that, that's a huge number on a year-on-year -year comps. I mean, we know what that is. That's, that's $35 a barrel going up to 60 or $70 a barrel, right? And then right. you say, well, that, 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 that'll do the comps. And that Take that across copper, take it across iron ore, take it across lead, zinc, you know, platinum. We're seeing it in gold. I mean, all these sectors now are, are bubbling and bubbling because the, the prices got so, so low in this epic downturn for those, for those sectors. And we're also seeing uh, oil prices per barrel uh, recovering from, what is it, $26 not that long ago to roughly 50 right now. So that's obviously having a big effect as well. Right, and if you plant the S&P 500 flag at the lows at 1812 back in February 12th, 2016, it's about within a, a week or two of that $26 barrel oil roll. So when you have energy being such a dominant player in the swing of the S&P 500 earnings overall, you're going to get this performance so that the, when oil prices firm up or the outlet firms up, the S&P is going to firm up. And that, that's the core takeaway here is that this whole thing on looking forward is that the energy and materials sectors continue to, 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 to redouble their efforts to increase their prices. And the other big players, consumer discretionary financials, infotech, and healthcare, continue to look like double-digit players over the next year. So those are the two stories, Mark, we got to believe in, six sectors out of ten Two big ones, energy and materials, really kicking it, and the other four staying central to the double-digit growth rate around 10%. Great. Now, I want to stay on Q2 earnings for a minute here. I want to talk a little bit about other success stories we've seen in other industries. Uh, Qualcomm yesterday and Microsoft just a few days ago. Uh, so the tech sector, the, the, uh, the grander uh, version of the tech sector, um, much, much better than expected as well. Yeah, you know, again, the tech sector has been uh, not such a great performer. If you're looking at it from a year-on-year -year perspective, it's 2.2% year-on-year. That's, that's you know, better than 0.3% for 2016, but nothing to write home about. But what makes the Infotech's 2.2% number relevant is that it actually is what the GDP growth rate of the United States economy is. So you can't say Infotech is underperforming the U.S. economy. It is performing in line with the U.S. economy and basically on track with the U.S. economy. Now, the other thing about Infotech is it, it has 
Um, a huge weighted average, one of the highest sales quantities from outside the U.S. is Infotech. So what you're seeing in Infotech is also, as it rises, is the story of the global economy is rising. And that's true for the semiconductors particularly that are made in you know, Taiwan. And, and countries like Taiwan are, are actually what is outperforming in Asia. So within Infotech, you have uh, a story that you need to trace into your ETFs wherever they are, whether it's a Taiwanese ETF because it's got a lot of semiconductors or anything you know, in, in Singapore or South Korea, look to see what the names and what the concentrations are for Infotech. And again, obviously the S&P 500 Infotech sector is, is another one of those bits. But within that, to the earnings we, reports we've gotten that you've talked about, uh, Qualcomm in particular, Microsoft in particular, you have very big large cap names. And they, what, what matters for large cap names like this is almost certainly they are going to be pushed and being pushing these major ETFs because they're in them, right? I mean, the way you construct an ETF is you basically pick the biggest companies. So the one thing we're also seeing out of this type of thing from a stock investor perspective is these types of companies, when they do well, will lift their ETFs and they will get some more buying going and will get more passive investing taking these companies up. Because, I mean, as Bill Ackman pointed out a long time ago, uh, the United States has become a passive invest, a passive capitalist system, meaning the ETFs and all these big indexes are actually what's making decisions, not you know corporate raiders like in the 80s. So the thing you get here is when large caps do well, their indexes do well, and there's a circularity and a, and a multiplier effect on the stock returns. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a very interesting point. Absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit then about some of the losers we've seen so far in Q2 earnings season. I don't mean to, to pick on them, but Southwest Airlines it's, uh, it's, uh, was definitely disappointed uh, on a number of metrics, and the stock is down uh, right now as well. Uh, United did a little bit better, but uh, how, where do you see the airlines in general uh, as we speak? Well, the thing I've learned about the airline problems is they go back a year and a half ago. I mean, they're it wasn't too long ago that the airlines were the real boom sector for um, stock investors, and that's not been true at all for a good long time now. And the reason is is because competition is heated up and revenue per seat mile has gone down, meaning people are paying less to get anywhere. I mean, I'm a classic example, Mark. When I visit you guys today, or I did two weeks ago, I pay $300 round-trip ticket from L.A., that's nothing, and, you, and you've got to remember uh, oil prices have been going up during this entire time, and my ticket prices have gone basically down $100, which is real money when you realize the, the margins on these things can be razor thin. So the problem with airline tickets and airline prices and airline profitability is that it's a very perfectly competitive model. I mean, this is sort of your, your industry textbook example of perfect competition in your, your freshman year class, because... Any seat is any seat. I know the, 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 the routes. I know the competition, and you can't really have a much advantage. Uh, Southwest Airlines, they always try to find an advantage. How do they do that? They basically rent airline slots at weaker airfields where they pay less for the midways of the world. I mean, Love Field in, in Dallas was their original play, and they got cheap slots at, at Love Field, and they uh, leveraged that into their business. So. That works for five years or ten years until everybody else figures out how to do the same thing. And so Southwest is no longer anything great. And, you know, we've got other players like Allegiant out there that are doing quite well because they're flying to smaller markets and underserved markets. But 
I think that the basic message you have with major mainstream carriers right now is that they're competing each other to death, which is good for us as consumers, but they're not leaving much on the table for stock investors. And then the airline stocks have been doing quite well, much historically, on a historical basis especially, um, largely due to the lower fuel prices. Now that those have resolved, as we discussed a little bit earlier, do you think that's the major correlation between why the airline companies are doing worse uh, at this time? No, I don't, because the reason is they have hedges on these oil prices, and so it's very, very difficult to know what actually happens from a one-on-one perspective between oil prices and ticket prices, because they hedged the oil, the oil, aviation oil in particular, has a big hedging structure, a lot of currency and hedging structure. So what it tells you overall is the same story. At the top line, revenue, at the top line, the ticket purchase price is getting eroded by competition, and they are being forced to lose revenue at the top line, and that's what's going on. Okay, very good. I just want to remind everybody who's listening to the VoiceAmerica.com's business channel, I'm talking today with John Blank from Los Angeles, who is the Chief Strategist for Zacks Investment Management. Um, also wanted to say, uh, to contact a representative at Zacks Investment Management to discuss managing your retirement assets, call 800-249-2934 or email us at ziminfo, Z-I-M info, at zacks.com. Uh, John, recently you wrote uh, a Zacks Market Strategy piece um, actually before the Q2 earnings came out so well uh, called A New Bull Run. Uh, you were on it even before the Q2 earnings uh, buried you out. Um, so we started off this year, the lousiest, this is using your words, lousiest start for stocks in a new year on record and it's been reversed. That's correct. Yeah? That's correct. Okay, and the S&P 500 passed in mid-July. It's all-time highs seen in June 25. We know that's true as well. Um, where... Where do we start with this? It's not just Q2 earnings. Like I said, you called this out before the, the earnings reports were even released. Yeah, the reason, the way to think about this and, and why people are so confused about this is, you know, we're, we're, we're in a, what is true, a, a forward PE of 17 on the S&P, which is historically high. There's no doubt about it, and it has gone up, which is, there's no doubt about that. And there's also evidence that's in most people's minds that, the S&P 500, you know, tanked all the way to 2009 has been rising up the hill for seven or eight years, and that's a very long bull market. Now, what 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 I will tell people, and why it's going to even even longer bull market is there's a couple of situations that are very relevant to, to now that, that haven't been relevant since the 90s. First off, Europe had a big face plan and a big market correction and reset the dial on stocks in 2011 in into early 2012. So. In truth, and, and think back about the S&P 500, and you will know I, that I, you will agree with me, is that those big 500, 600 pent swings in the S&P in, in 2011 were gone. We started climbing this, this steady hill in 2012. And so the actual bull cycle, if you want to price it correctly and think about it correctly, in my mind, is starting in early 2012, which is 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and now 2016. So it's only five years old. And that's not very long. And the reason is Europe did not one crisis with us in 2008. It did another crisis in 2011 and rose from, you know, the 5 or 6 percent unemployment we started in 2007 with, with them. We all went to 8. They went to 12. Now they're back at 9. So the answer with Europe is if you're still at 9 or 10 percent unemployment, uh, you know, you have a long ways to go to get back to 7, and that's probably three years. 
And since you've already been running downhill for four or five years with interest rates, now you're going to push them even lower for longer, which they've already told us. And today we have from Mario Draghi that they're going to stay lower for longer into 2017. So suddenly in a in a very webbed together, very intricately interwoven international financial system, the money being pumped into the system in Europe is going straight into these bond markets and pushing rates down, including our own U.S. 10-year rate, which benchmarks mortgages, which benchmarks car loans, which basically benchmarks any cyclical finance in the United States, including business. Hey John, I want to get into this a little bit more after our break. We're going to take a break right now on voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and John Blank. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Today's dramatic business and workforce changes make it urgent to think differently about HR. Instead of being just the system of record or engagement, HR needs to become an agile platform for everything in your organization to come together to transform the work experience. How can you develop your key relationships across the business as you transform HR into a powerful force for business breakthroughs? Tune in Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners, to voiceamerica.com's business channel. This is The Steady Investor. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and today I'm joined uh, remote from Los Angeles by John Blank, the Chief Strategist for Zach's Investment Management. I uh, wanted to give a little quick word on Zach's Investment Management before we start the second segment. Uh, Zach's Investment Management, or Zim, is a wealth management boutique formed in 1992, and it's a leading expert on earnings and using earnings estimates in the investment process. We have an 800 number, 1-800-918-3114. 
to learn more. Again, that's 1-800-918-3114. And I would advise any listeners uh, who are interested in contacting a representative at Zach's Investment Management to discuss managing your retirement assets to call that number or email ZIMinfo, ZIMinfo at Zaxx.com. Uh, welcome back, John. Uh, we were talking about the ECB, the European Central Bank, and uh, its President Mario Draghi. He did have a, a speech this morning. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on, on what he had to say about uh, the EU going forward and, uh, and Brexit and so forth? Uh, you know, Mario Draghi didn't give us anything new, but what was interesting about the fact that he didn't give us anything new is that we just did have Brexit. So um, what concerned the market was that he can't carry off any changes from the Brexit. And what he says is he thought the Brexit shock was handled pretty well and that uh, the Eurozone's borrowing, borrowing costs should be remain unchanged because it, it didn't really um, create as much of a dramatic effect on the macro economy as, as it did up on the financial market. So what he knows and what I know, what everybody knows, is that the real effect was on the, U, the U.K. pound. And that went from 148 to 132, which is if, you know, if you're a Europe, U.K. citizen, you're really feeling the pain if you're trying to travel to Europe now, or if you're a U.K. manufacturer and you're trying to ship things into the country. But if you're a European Union citizen, you went from 113 on the euro to 111, which is two cents. And that's, that's de minimis in an economist's words, which means of a minimum, meaning there's no real uh, important uh, event here for the European Union currency. So that means that you know, trailing back from the currency, if that's the only place that there was real change, and there really wasn't for the euro, then it's not surprising that Draghi didn't move, because he didn't have to change, because nothing changed. And so the news out of, the, out of a situation like this is that no change was good news because if he had pulled the plug on lowering the negative rate from point, minus 0.4 to minus 0.5, or he had added some more stimulus ideas or new corporate bond buying or whatever, that would have been an indication that somewhere within the, the architecture of the, the European Union economy, there was concern. And the fact there was no concern, he stayed the course after Brexit was a positive surprise for the European Union and, and therefore for the, U, the world economy. Uh, very interesting. Now, for those who voted for Brexit, for uh, English citizens, British citizens who voted to exit, uh, when do they start seeing, if they do, any benefits from this decision to uh, decouple themselves from the rest of the EU? Well, first of all, we've got a new prime minister, uh, who's a woman prime minister, and she did her first prime minister questions this week. That's right, Theresa May. Right. Name. right, and what, what Theresa May has been saying to the court of law, which is reviewing the whole, the actual exit of the, the European Union uh, agreement, which is called Article 50, is that she will not initiate that Article 50 agreement to exit the Union until 2017 at the earliest. And so if it's 2017 at the earliest, then that's six months away or 12 months away. And it's uncertain if even when and how it will happen in 12 months. So what markets do with that type of noise, they, they just overlook it because there's too much going on, particularly the U.S. presidential election, which matters more. Because we got four months from now, the U.S. presidential cycle plays out. And typically in a U.S. presidential cycle, you see an 8.5% annual, annual return because Everyone stays out of the way of the election. The Fed stays out of the way of the election. The government doesn't want to pass any policies until it's over and everybody sees what's going on. So right now, what you get is a bull market because there's no, there's no headwinds, there's only tailwinds, 
and everybody sits on the sidelines with, with their, their policies until it's over. So that the thing about the Brexit getting, it really was a non-event for 2016 other than the pound. And if it, if it does become an event in 2017, it will be leaked out of the Cabinet Bureau level of the U.K. way in advance of actually hitting the markets. And we're going to learn in piecemeal fashion over the next year and a half what's really going on there. But before that happens, the U.S. presidential election will dominate. And after it's over, depending on who's elected, it will continue to dominate. So that's the bull market story, because at the end of the day, the European Union is what matters for the European Union. The U.K. system and the FTSE is what matters for, for, the, for the Britain. And if you're the S&P 500, you're through the Russell. If you're the Dow, if you're anything with 65 to 70% of all stocks, the only thing that matters is the U.S. economy, and that for the U.S. presidential election is what matters. So we're in U.S. presidential election politics. That is the focus, and bull markets get created in front of these things. And you mentioned in your Zach's Market Strategy piece from a couple weeks ago that you felt the UK Brexit event would be a non-event for U.S. customers. Do you mean at all, or just not until 2017? Well, exactly. I mean, we saw today, I said it was going to be a non-event, and that's what happened with Draghi. Nothing changed. He took a look with his team and said, we're not going to do anything different, which means nothing changed. So that's what I meant, and that's what we're seeing here. Now, again, you can say... And, I, and you have said to me, is it 2017 that matters and when they do something? The, the, you know, there's always the case that it, with the Open Market Committee of the United States meeting eight times a year and, and, the, and the ECB meeting 12 times a year, the reason they do that is it's not uh, all baked in what's going to happen over the next year. They meet every month and sit down, run through the data, and, and figure out what to do. So they, they, this is the data-dependent uh, management of the global system. And so the answer is... Anything can happen next year, and they'll take it one twelfth at a time until we get there. And so one twelfth over 12 times, and we'll find out what happens. But the likelihood is that the first six or eight of those 12 times into February of next year, after we get a presidential election, after an inauguration, after you install that president, you're already in February and March. That's when we can start to see a market pay attention to something other than the presidential election. Very interesting. And you said the optimistic thing, and this is kind of going into what you just said, uh, that can be noted about the post-Brexit situation, is that the players have time to sort this all out. That's it, and they're not going to. I mean, you've got to remember that Article 50 of actually leaving the European Union has to be approved not only by the Prime Minister, but by the Parliament of England. And that two-thirds of those parliamentarians that are existing and sit today will not vote for it positively. So... And here's the struggle you have is Merkel and all the players at you know, Tusk and all these guys in the European Union are not going to negotiate with England until they leave the, the Article 50 through the Parliament. So this is, is sketchy things. And, and so why do you say, why is Theresa May waiting to 2017? The answer is simple. First, she doesn't know for, for, for what they really want to do. I mean, this is kind of a Donald Trump kind of thing where you're talking a lot the Brexit was a lot of talk, but there was no policies, no real review of what was going to be done. So they have to be six or seven months of just figuring out what it means to leave the European Union. What do they, what do they mean by that? What do they want to achieve by that? Because you, to even get to a negotiation, well, I don't even know what you want. <laughs> you ever, and what it means in a governmental context is you have to show up with you know, a 200-page document saying, here's 10 chapters of immigration, of tariffs, of regulatory action, of, of financial market reform, 
all that you have to show me in advance before I can even start to talk to you. So number one, you have to do that, and they haven't even done that. Number two, you have to get Article 50 passed through your parliament before the EU will ever even talk to you. So you can't even negotiate even after you've done most big pitch books until you get Article 50 done. And then after you get Article 50 done, you start negotiating. And that can be into 2017, and then, of course, how long is that negotiation going to go on? I'm not going to give you your wish list. And so that, that negotiation, trade negotiations like that, two years. So the thing about wow. all this, if you start to think about it, is England is going to look at its belly button for two to three years. And it's going to talk to itself, and it's going to talk to its, all the parliamentarians and the people, and then the parliamentarians are going to talk to all the reps and the trade reps and all the other people. And then they're going to talk to the European Union, and they're going to go around and around on that. So the bottom line is, is England's going to be chasing its tail around and around in circles for two or three years. And after it's over, do they stop chasing their tail? Um, maybe not. I mean, the thing about this is this historical context is that you know, England was really actually kind of antipolar to the United States until World War One, and then certainly after World War II with Churchill, who wrote, you know, the history of the English-speaking peoples and got England tied to its colonies. And, and, and the idea, of course, is we would, and we indeed did, save them from destruction during World War Two. So what has happened, in my opinion, with Brexit is we have left the English consensus of the last 60 years behind now, if you believe that, and I do think we won't know that for five or six more years, but if it is true that England goes back to its previous Victorian role of kind of being an anti-polar place, another English place, but not really tied to us, they're just out there. They're not our enemies, but they're not important. The difference between them in the 19th century and now is there's 60 million people in England. The Commonwealth had hundreds of million people, but they're not, they don't have that any strength anymore. So now you're going to stare at your belly button for three years, Afterwards, we don't even know if you're going to matter to anybody after you stare at yourself in the mirror for three years, talk to yourself for three years, argue with your partners for three years. What we're going to do if we're in the United States is we're going to make deals with everybody else because you're, you're, you're not able to do that with us. You're simply not able. So the United States is going to move on. And the United States and Europe and China are going to be more relevant partners for each other because it's just easier to do business and they're already set up to do business. They're not staring at their, their belly buttons. So... This is what's going to happen. I don't actually agree, and I think Mario Draghi today proved this, that there's any effect whatsoever on, on Europe. And that Europe will get on knitting its sweaters and, and putting together its cars and, and making its food production better and, 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 in fact, increasing defense spending and integration and all the other things that Europe does. And they're going to get to England when they get to it because it doesn't matter when you're 60 million. I mean, it's kind of like... A family with six people and you're a four-year-old. If you're the only child a person has, your four-year-old really matters. If you're five other kids and you're four years old, you might, you might have a little trouble getting any attention. Well, the one thing you could say, I think, on behalf of those who uh, un, un Great Britain, is that they no longer have to be a part and parcel with the Greece economic situation or Spain or Italy or any other places in the EU that are struggling right now. What do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, first of all, I mean, the European Union, as we talked earlier macroeconomically, had gone through two crises, not one. And the European debt crisis, which included Greece, but it extended out to Italy, to Spain, to Ireland, and across the rest of the southern parts of Europe, if we don't remember, was the second crisis. So, in fact, the 
the institution of the European Union is only 20-some years old in its current form, and it had to deal with two major financial crises, not one, of which you brought up Greece, but really there were five or six others. And even today, the Italian banking crisis is another echo of that second European crisis. So I think what you have to remind yourself of is that it's amazing the European Union stood at all, much less stood through two major crises. And it, it is to actually to some to credit that it saved the euro. It, it continued to align itself. And the reason for that is simple, is that in the midst of the last 20 years, in the face of all these internal crises, economic crises, they have expanded towards Eastern Europe, 15 or 16 countries. And the reason the Germans have done that more than anything, and the French, is that the big history of Europe in World War II was the Russians took over half of it, and they got knocked out of there in the 90s. And expanding to the border of Russia with the European Union is, is a huge decision from a security perspective as well as economics to keep the Germans out of another fight with the Russians. And that's what they're really worried about. They're worried about the Russians. So the European Union has stood up because there is an opponent to the East called Russia that is a much greater threat than any debt crisis or any Brexit or anything that Greece can throw at it. Because at the end of the day, your existential uh, element of your life, the actual fact you live and exist and breathe, is only because Russia is not along. And you can say, that's a joke. Well, remember, Angela Merkel is in East German. She spent half of her life in a communist country before she ran Germany. So it is relevant in the first-person context to the German prime minister that Russia stay out of the game. So they're going to continue to wrap those countries in as a strategy to keep Russians out and away from Germany. And that's going to matter more than what happens in Southern Europe or more than what happens in England. So the fact the English got so pissed off at the Polish people is not going to cause any stress out of the Germans who basically have a border with Poland and have done so for, for 500 years. So the, the thing you've got to think about is the English got tweaked by the situation, but the Germans are very, very certain they made the right decision. That's very interesting, and it just goes to show, and historians have known this for a long time, you can only go so far discussing Europe before you're no longer talking about economic issues and you're talking about wholly other things. Uh, we're, we're, this is the Study Investor, um, speaking with John Blank, remote from Los Angeles. He's the Chief Strategist at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, and if you'd like to contact a representative at Zacks Investment Management to discuss managing your retirement assets, call 800 249 2934 or email ziminfo, Z-I-M info at zax.com. Um, wanted to touch on, and we don't have a lot of time here, uh, just but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the jobs report that uh, came out this month and uh, that we're back on a good trajectory after a, a difficult time in May. I don't know if we should wait um, a little bit to discuss this in, de- in detail, but what's your initial take on the 287,000 uh, okay, we only have 20 seconds left. Okay, John, you'll, you'll hold on uh, the line here. We'll talk in the third segment about the Zach's Market Strategy piece that you wrote recently and about the uh, 287,000 jobs uh, that were produced in June. Okay? Okay. Okay, terrific. Well, we'll speak to you in just a minute. Uh, this is The Steady Investor with Zach's Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. 
Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Do you feel it when you work with marketing or PR firms? They're moving in slow motion. Or they just don't know what they're talking about. You won't get that on Marketing at Lightspeed. Host Ethan Raziel and his guest experts will deliver tips and tricks that work at Lightspeed. If you want to accelerate your company's marketing, listen every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Hi there, listeners to VoiceAmerica.com's business channel, The Steady Investor. Uh, the third segment of The Steady Investor is coming at you. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today, uh, as I said before, by John Blank, Ph.D. He's the chief strategist for Zach's Investment Management, as well as the primary author of the monthly market strategy report for Zim. Um, John, I wanted to talk a little bit about the article you wrote recently uh, for the Zach's market strategy piece called A New Bull Run, and I wanted to quote something you quoted from a Fed economist um, uh, talking about the U.S. macro situation, if I could. Uh, and the, the quote goes like this, while the average gain of 152,000 jobs per month represents a slowdown relative to the robust pace of the past few years, it is well above the level needed to support further improvement in overall labor market conditions. You'd concur with this, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, let's do a real simple math exercise here. Uh, May, we know, was terrible. Uh, it was 11,000 jobs. And June was great, 287,000 jobs. So let's do simple arithmetic. 287 plus 11 is 298,000. So... Mark, just to give you that Fed economist pitch all the way back over again, 298,000 divided by two, let's say it's 300,000 divided by two, that's what the Fed's telling you. 150,000 jobs a month is what this U.S. economy is doing. And that is all you need to know, because what that tells you is you get to the 200,000 or above level, you're doing plus 3% growth in the U.S. economy's context. Anything below 100,000, you're not, you're not meeting uh, population growth. So what you're doing when you're doing 150 is you're, you're, you're cleaning up your population growth and you're adding some jobs on the margin very, very slowly. And that's, that's the muddle through economy. That's telling you that once you average these statistics out in a revised format, you get the number. So 
What we're learning about the U.S. job situation is that there is nothing to learn, and there hasn't been anything to learn for a number of years now. And and the thing, the lesson, again, I've told this to people a number of times, is that you know we have a news cycle that's very, very short, and an impatience that the the bull run is over, and this this timing and this angst and this paranoia that the the bull runs over and the economy is going to tank, and your stock market returns and your portfolio and your retirement accounts are going to tank. Uh, that is a very relevant problem, but the problem is you can get that call wrong three or four times, and as Peter Lynch pointed out, most people have lost more money trying to time corrections than getting recessions right or wrong. So the thing to learn about this whole thing is you want to be late to calling recessions, not early. And I have, I have colleagues at Zach's who will not understand this to their, their dying breath, but... What you want to do is what I just did, which is I've been telling Mark for years now, revised monthly data over three months is a quarter, and a recession requires two consecutive quarters of, of weak negative GDP, which in the non-farm payroll context means you have to do less than 50 or 100,000 for month after month. So what you want to see before you can start listening to talking heads like me or anybody else or anything at all is to see revised monthly non-farm payrolls over three consecutive months go way below 50 in the negatives and back up to 60 and certainly no more than 100. So what you'd like to start to do before you start to worry is say plus 80, 15,000, minus 20, or minus 20, back to 80, then 30. If that's the kind of numbers that are being produced in a revised quarterly setting of over three months of time, begin to worry and pull your stocks out of your investment portfolios, put them into bonds, put them into cash, get out of these markets. But that's not happening. And that's the point of these things is don't pay attention to the number when it first comes out. Don't be the first guy off the truck because the reason is that number – as I explained to Mark last year, month was on June the 3rd, for, for, or July the 3rd for June. And that's two days for the government to organize several hundred thousand firms and get the data in. And they simply don't do it because of the mail and all the other administrative processes that it takes. So you only want to see the world if, if correctly, and that means you only want to pay attention to revised data. And you don't even want to pay attention to that until it piles up a bit. So the bottom line is, to get this call right, it's not hard, but just pay attention to revised numbers over three or four months of time and really note without any question in your mind that they've gotten to the point where the U.S. economy, whatever problems it has, is not being able to overcome those problems in a macroeconomic sense. And the big summary statistic of payrolls has rolled over and rolled south. And that's when you can begin to make very meaningful changes to your portfolio. Now, I want to point out to everybody that this type of thing doesn't take you out at the top. It takes you out 5 or 10% below it because there are going to be people who are going to beat you in front of this thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Investing is not about trying to tick off the tops. It's just being riding waves and getting off your surfboard in time for the next one. And so the other thing to note is when do you get back in? You know, when you get out, you've got to get back in. So any choice to get out is two choices because you got to get back in. So you also need a metric, which should be the tie to the same one that got you out, and when to get back in. And so, again, after you get out the bonds, after you go to cash, how long do you stay there? The answer is you stay there as long as the non-farm payrolls in a revised monthly setting stay below 100. 
And if you went back to 2009, there was three months when we went from to 120 to 180 to 210. When that happened, the stock market had bottomed six months earlier, but you could get in without even wringing your hands because you could ride the ball for the next seven years correctly. And that's the point is on the way in again, you have the same metric as you had on the way out, which is now whatever is taking the economy up is strong enough that it's manifesting itself in this payroll context, and we're headed up. So, again, when you're timing markets, forget it. You're not the smartest guy, and the smartest guy is not first. The smartest guy is actually seeing the world correctly, and since the world is so dynamic and there is so much displacement and instability in a sector level and an industry level and in financial markets, you can never sort this out until you can, can only be vigilant. And the vigilance and the smart, vigilant person is staying on top of these numbers on a revised setting over many months and making those calls correctly the first time and only that time and only getting it right. With, and the only way you're going to get it right correctly the first time is to be a little late to the game. And that's very good. And it goes to your point also when you talk about the weekly jobless claims. They look at the four-week moving average. So they're, again, smoothing out the data so that you're not reacting in one way or another too harshly to a particularly good or particularly bad number. And what we're seeing there is uh, new jobless claims of about between the range of 250K to 275K. And it's been pretty consistent over a longer stretch uh, that way as well. So uh, the point. Right. And so you get the monthlies and you say, I want to confirm this because all I want to make sure is the picture of these numbers. The picture is correct. So if I can come to the picture with a different coat of paint, different kit of brushes, meaning it mean I can use the weekly claims over four weeks and get a monthly number, and you can use a smooth average of the four weeks, and you see that it's not going anywhere, then you don't have to worry about what the payroll is going to be in August because we know it's not going anywhere in July. Because it's not going anywhere. So not, even if you're worried about what's going to happen here in two weeks, and we've got people at Dex worried about this very heavily, they're good, keeping one eye open for the bear market. we got, we got a guy writing about this one, one eye open, man. Sleep one eye open. The answer is no, sleep. <laughs> the claims are very much indicating that August is fine. And you can get to August, and then the claims will tell you what September is going to do, and so on and so forth. And by the way, even when you get to those monthly numbers, you don't want to pay attention to them because you only want the revised data. So, no, sleep with both eyes closed and get some sleep. Don't panic and make sure you get the call right. That's interesting. Well, there are a lot of uh, people out there, though, that are a little wary of this extensive uh, bull run that we've been on. However, as Mitch Zach says, bull runs don't die of old age. So that's probably where you are, more or less, I imagine. That is actually true, and the Fed has done studies on this in one of my monthly reports, you know, they studied the length of time that it takes for a, for a, a bull market to run out, and the answer is, it, they do die of old age about 2 or 3% of the time. Meaning, And you don't see that as being a risk. Type of atrophy, but it's so, so low. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I think, you know, people want to believe that there's this thing that just we run out of room in the U.S. economy and we tank. Now, what, what people have to understand about recessions is that's not really how it works. You don't actually run out of rope. We know we're at 5% unemployment and we're gonna, we've run out of rope. There's not enough resources for the economy. Well, what that tells you, we're still adding population through immigration and, and births. We're still seeing technical change. We're still seeing investment coming in out of the country. So we're still seeing a tremendous amount of tumult and therefore growth in the U.S. economy. But what 
what recessions happen is when all of something that is big enough gets excesses. Excesses. Because if you have excesses, then you have to wring them out. And the recession is taking the wedge that went too far ahead and pulling it down later on to smooth everything out. So the point is you don't actually get to full employment and, and tank. What you do is you've got to blow it up and really have an excess. So Mark's got to call me and say that he's moving to Los Angeles and he and his wife are going to buy a $5 million condo two blocks down from me. And he's going to stay working at Zach's. If that start story starts to percolate, I'm going to start to worry about a recession. Right? <laughs> so again, you're worried only when, when the exuberance gets uh, gets too extensive. That's another thing that Mitch was talking about a couple weeks back. Uh, so real quick, let's get into some sector winners looking forward and sector losers. Uh, the, the sector winners you were saying, uh, well, this is now a couple weeks ago, healthcare, drug companies, uh, particularly the large caps, uh, infotech, uh, particularly electronics and the semiconductor industries. Does that still stand as far as you're seeing it? Yeah, absolutely. You have the two core drivers here. Uh, you know, again, I mean, don't go too far into the depth here. Just make sure you understand things correctly. And first of all, semiconductors, the Internet of Things, the World Wide Web, the wireless revolution, the, the webbing of the world into a massive brain through chips. Uh, it's not ending anytime soon, and the cheapness of these things are going down, which means they're getting more proliferating. Not in any, If anything, they're going further into our fabric, not less. So semiconductors always have been, for, for years now, we saw this with ARM, being bought by uh, SoftBank from Japan mm-hmm. just last week is these are a very hot se- sector. Now, drugs, I mean, again, don't be a genius. Why do drug stocks do well? A, it's patent protection. They, they, they have 15-year life cycles of, of once you get a, a, a patent together on a, a, a drug. The other thing is aging populations, which we're seeing across the advanced countries, which means those are the country with the money and disposable income are spending money on drugs because people are getting older. And this is the other thing you see. And so healthcare in general and semiconductors within Infotech, particularly consumer-facing, Internet-related things, is, is still remaining a, a very strong part of the growth story of the world economy. And, again, I mean, you say, oh, the world economy is tanking. No, it isn't. I mean, since I've been watching the world economy for the last four or five years. It goes from 3.8 to 3.2 and back again. So now the IMF, you hear, oh, it's downgrading the, the well, they went to 3.4 from 3.5. And again, that's a tenth of a percent. And so you have to understand that the half of the world growth comes out of China, and China's doing 6.5% a year, and that's not going anywhere. And the other half of the world growth comes from places like the United States and Europe, and then there's maybe 10 or 15% from other places. And so world growth isn't going anywhere, particularly the Chinese don't grow anywhere. So I wouldn't get worried about it. And then you just got to ask yourself, what is growing within the growth? And where is it capitalized on as an investor and get in front of it or around it and, and, and get that correctly? And that's what's going on here. That is terrific. John Blank, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Uh, we've had a really good time here on The Steady Investor. Uh, the, uh, this is through Zach's Investment Management. And John Blank is the primary author of The Monthly Market Strategy, as well as Chief Strategist for Zach's Investment Management. Um, John, again, once again, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I would ad- advise all of our readers, I mean our listeners, to read his A New Bull Run Zach's Market Strategy, which came out, uh, as well as the Mitch Zach's Mitch on the Markets articles that come out on a weekly basis. Uh, if you are interested in contacting a representative at Zach's Investment Management to discuss managing your retirement assets, call 800-249-2934 or email ZIM 
info at zax.com. John Blank, once again, thank you very much for your, for your assistance today. And it was great talking with you. Thank you, Mark. And then to all our listeners on voiceamerica.com's business channel, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 